Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for June 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the last month's critical care literature. So it was a relatively quiet month in critical care, but there are still some standout articles worth discussing. Let's start with the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and Indication and Effects of Plasma Transfusions in Critically Ill Children by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, the Polisi, Bloodnet and the Plasma TV investigators. So this is a prevalence study that describes the indications and outcomes of 13,192 critically ill children that received a plasma transfusion in a six-week period in 100 PICUs in 21 countries. So not a red cell transfusion, but a plasma transfusion. They report that the primary indication for plasma transfusion was critical bleeding in 22.3%, minor bleeding in 21.2%, surgery in 11.7%, and in 34.1% there was no bleeding or planned procedure, that is, no obvious indication. The median INR prior to transfusion was 1.5 APTT48, and after transfusion, the changes were a minus 0.2 for INR, minus 5 second for APTT. Plasma transfusion significantly improved INR only in patients with an INR greater than 2.5. And the rest of the data was the median ventilation duration was 5 days, PICU stay 10 days, PICU mortality 26.9%, so pretty high. So overall, this is the largest observational study of plasma transfusion in critically ill children. And it showed that only a fifth of plasma transfusions occur for critical bleeding, and a third appear to have no indication. So this would appear to be setting the scene for uh, an interventional or at least change of practice type study. Okay, let's move on to critical care medicine and an article Understanding and Reducing Disability in Older Adults Following Critical Illness. So surviving critical illness is a life-altering event, particularly for the increasing population of elderly patients that we are able to care for. Critical illness survival is a spectrum that ranges from those who are free of disability to severe disability and those that are chronically critically ill or hospital dependent to living at home. The disabling process is due to a complex interaction of pre-illness vulnerability, critical illness factors and treatment factors. Now this review conducted by an expert panel of geriatricians and critical care clinicians identified 19 studies evaluating disability outcomes in critically ill patients who were 65 years of age or older and they report the following. The conceptual model that diseases or injuries result in dysfunction of body systems, which are impairments, leading to the inability to perform basic physical and cognitive functions, which are functional limitations, that then alter the individual's capability to meet the demands of his or her environment, which is disability, is a robust and informative framework to view this. So that is, pathology leads to impairment, 
leads to functional limitation, leads to disability. So the overall evidence reports a significant burden of post-critical illness disability, although it is limited in size and accounting for pre-critical illness trajectory. Somewhere from 30 to 60% of patients have disability on ADLs within three months of critical illness. 10 to 60% of patients have worse ADLs at one year than pre-critical illness. 14 to 90% of patients have disability in mobility and activity at three months after critical illness. 12 to 18% of patients have new dementia between one and eight years after critical illness. About half of patients have new, mild to moderate cognitive impairment after critical illness. And overall, about three quarters of patients have cognitive impairment or dementia at four years after critical illness. They then go on to talk about the intersections between critical illness and ageing. And I think there's clearly a lot we can learn from geriatricians. So for the majority of us, normal aging is characterized by progressive accumulation of molecular and cellular damage due to illness, injury, environmental and epigenetic factors that lead to physiologic impairments of organ systems and an increased risk of disease, disability and death. Uh, there are some specific examples like skeletal muscle. About half of over 65-year-olds have age-related sarcopenia. Critical illness accelerates this process through a multifactorial process. The aging brain. Aging results in a variable trajectory of decline in cognitive abilities, particularly in working memory, short-term memory and processing speed. Critical illness, like other inflammatory states, adds to this, making ageing brains more susceptible to delirium and cognitive impairment. They then go on to talk about reducing disability. So post-critical illness, disability results from the interaction of a patient's baseline health status and vulnerability to the acute stress of critical illness with the effects of the acute illness itself and treatment practices during and after the ICU admission. We can't prevent aging or as yet predict and prevent critical illness. Therefore we need to identify high risk older patients, address modifiable risk factors and they talk about immobility as the under-recognized epidemic and delirium which are the two obvious candidates. They recommend interventions to improve functional and cognitive outcomes, assess early, have tested bundles that are implemented. And then they finally go on to talk about directions for future research. They identify two areas. The first is additional research is needed to understand how the trajectory of a patient's pre-illness functional status as well as factors relating to the patient's critical illness and their ICU treatment result in post-critical illness disabilities. And the second is that interventions that can be implemented throughout the continuum of critical illness from the earliest days in the ICU to a variety of post-ICU settings should be studied and implemented. So let's go on to two articles published in the New England Journal of Medicine about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the first is early CPR in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. As stated 
In the American and European guidelines, the most important response measures that currently can be taken outside a hospital setting are recognizing early that a cardiac arrest is occurring, placing an alarm call, performing CPR and performing defibrillation. Three million Swedes, that's about a third, are trained in CPR and there is no RCT of bystander versus no bystander CPR. So this study is a database analysis conducted from the 1st of January 1990 to 31st of December 2011, that is 22 years. They look at 30,381 patients treated by an early medical system and having bystander witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this is from the Swedish Cardiac Arrest Registry. They compared those who had CPR started before the emergency medical team arrived, which was 15,500, versus CPR started after 14,900. So the groups were different at baseline with the CPR before the medical team arrived cohort were younger and less likely to arrest at home and they had more VFVT, a shorter period from collapse to CPR and an early EMS call. What did they find in terms of outcome? Well, 30-day survival was 10.5% for the group who had CPR before the EMS arrived versus 4% for the group who had CPR after the EMS arrived. And that's a p-value of less than 0.001 and it was present in all subgroups. So they did secondary outcomes. A subgroup of patients in the before EMS CPR group revealed that telephone-assisted CPR survival of 10.9% compared to no telephone-assist CPR survival of 15.4%. A post-hoc propensity score took into account multiple variables, year and interactions, resulted in a difference in 30-day survival between the before EMS CPR group and the after EMS CPR group remaining highly significant. And 474 patients survived for 30 days and had cerebral performance categories measured with higher scores indicating greater disability. Uh, at hospital discharge, 81% were category 1, 14% category 2, 5% category 3, and less than 1% were category 4 and 5. So in summary, Bystander, or pre-EMS CPR, is associated with improved survival in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The second Swedish CPR out-of-hospital cardiac arrest study published in the New England Journal of Medicine this month is the mobile phone dispatch of laypersons for CPR in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So the first paper told us that bystander CPR was associated with improved outcomes, which is good news in a country where a third of the population are trained. So how do you further improve the delivery of bystander CPR? Do you train more people or do you get more trained people to go to the arrests using technology like mobile phones? So this was a community-based blinded RCT conducted from the 1st of April 2012 to the 1st of December 2013. 9,829 lay volunteers were recruited through advertising and CPR courses 
and they are called SMSL or Short Message Service Lifesavers. So a mobile phone positioning system was developed and the SMSLs were registered with it, allowing the EMS dispatcher to locate them within 500 metres of a suspected out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and send them a text with information. The patients, there were 670 adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients and they were excluded if they were deemed to be in an unsafe environment. And they were randomised to... An SMSL was dispatched to them or no SMSL was dispatched. There was no difference in the baseline characteristics. The primary outcome was the rate of bystander CPR and it was 62% in SMSL group versus 48% in standard group, which is an absolute difference of 14%, 95% confidence intervals 6 and 21, p-value less than 0.001. Secondary outcomes, there was a difference in the rate of instructions given over the phone. It was 64.3% for the SMSLs versus 54.7% in the other group. There was no difference in time of arrival of the EMS. There was no difference in 30-day survival. And there were, in approximately 80% of cases, at least one volunteer was located within 500 metres. So the other way to look at those secondary outcomes is that in 20% of cases there was no volunteer located and although there was no difference in 30 days survival it was 11.2% in the SMSL group compared to 8.6% in the standard group. So in summary, a mobile positioning system and registration of lay volunteers to be located and dispatched by an EMS service improved rates of bystander CPR. The study wasn't powered to show a mortality difference, although it is plausible this would be the result, particularly in a larger study where more lay volunteers were trained and the intervention was able to be delivered to a larger proportion of patients. Finally, other studies have also included locating AEDs in this service. So you locate the trained person and locate the AED and the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and get them all together interesting stuff. The last article for the month from JAMA is the effect of a remote ischemic preconditioning on kidney injury among high-risk patients undergoing cardiac surgery, a randomized clinical trial. The introduction is that acute kidney injury after cardiac surgery is common and difficult to prevent. Remote ischemic preconditioning may attenuate renal injury through damage-associated molecular proteins that are then filtered by the kidney and signaled through toll-like receptors in the proximal tubule epithelia, inducing natural defences such as down-regulation, temporary cell cycle arrest, etc. These defences, once engaged, can then protect the kidney during subsequent inflammatory or ischemic stress. However, three prior studies of remote ischemic preconditioning have had conflicting results. So this prospective double-blinded RCT conducted from August 13 to June 14 enrolled 240 adults at high risk of acute kidney injury and undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass. So high risk uh, acute kidney injury was defined as a Cleveland Clinic Foundation score of 6 or higher. On the day of surgery, patients were assigned to undergo either ischemic preconditioning or sham 
remote ischemic preconditioning. So remote ischemic preconditioning consisted of three cycles of five minute inflation of a blood pressure cuff to 200 millimeters of mercury or at least a pressure 50 millimeters higher than the systolic arterial pressure to one upper arm followed by five minutes of reperfusion with the cuff deflated and this occurred after the induction of anesthesia and before skin incision. The baseline characteristics were similar. The primary outcome is that there were significantly fewer patients in the remote ischemic preconditioning arm who developed acute kidney injury within the first 72 hours and that was 37.5% versus 52.5% p-value of 0.02. The secondary outcomes were that remote ischemic preconditioning was associated with the reduced number of moderate and severe acute kidney injury, but not mild. The use of renal replacement therapy was 5.8% versus 15.8%. ICU length of stay, 3 versus 4 days. And there was no difference in mechanical ventilation duration, hospital length of stay, or mortality. They also quite elegantly looked at biomarkers and there were lower levels of renal injury biomarkers after cardiopulmonary bypass although they were higher after the ischemic preconditioning occurred and before bypass. In fact patients with higher biomarkers before bypass had lower acute kidney injury as opposed to patients with higher biomarkers after bypass who had higher acute kidney injury. So this multi-center RCT found remote ischemic preconditioning applied after induction of anesthesia before cardiopulmonary bypass to patients at high risk of acute kidney injury undergoing cardiac surgery resulted in reduced moderate to severe acute kidney injury and less renal replacement therapy. The biomarker profile suggests that the intervention resulted in an increased expression of the alarm markers while having no effect on the damage markers that were released. This is fascinating stuff and the authors calculate a trial of 4,000 patients would be required to establish a mortality benefit. Bring it on. So that's it for Critique Journal Club June 2015. Come to the website or we'll see you next month.